my goal isn't for people to come up to me or to look at a guy and be like, your outfit. You know, you just have to look presentable and clean cut and that you put some effort in. If you don't know how to match or you don't know what you're doing, wear black, brown, dark green. Wear all neutral colors. I'm a big neutral fan. Welcome to the Tip the Scales podcast where we discuss running and growing your law firm. I'm your host, Maria Monroy, president and co-founder of LawRank. Today, I am joined by Taylor Dordick, and she is very fashionable. Her whole family is. And initially, we were just going to talk about fashion because I have a couple of things that irk me about our space. But then we actually ended up talking about all sorts of things, like what it's like working with her dad and this $2.8 billion verdict. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Taylor Dordick, welcome. We're here. Thank you for doing this with me. I've been waiting. Yeah, finally. I thought you'd never ask. I did. I asked very early on. You did. You did. I wanted initially, I wanted all of you, but then Bob beat me to it up during I the know. and approved. So we'll do it. We'll still do yeah, it. Yeah, one day. So I want to, I love the way your whole family dresses. Like you guys are like the most fashionable family ever. And one of my, one of the things that irks me about the legal space is that half the lawyers dress like shit. Do you agree? Yeah, and I I think the professionalism in the wardrobe is what, I don't want to say bothers me the most, but I, I tried to, I think my style has tried to embrace how to be professional and be taken seriously, but still be fashionable and right. still feel good and confident and look good in my clothes. I'm, you know, I I try not to show much skin, but still feel sexy and confident. And I think that's the goal that I try to move towards when I'm dressing in the legal profession. And you just don't, it's not so much as, you know, people aren't dressing clean anymore. They're just kind of wearing whatever. My So like my biggest thing is like when a man wears a suit and it's not tailored properly. Worst. It's my biggest, biggest pet peeve. It's so funny. My fiance was wearing these pants last night and he said when he used to wear them, everyone hated them. And then he got them tailored and he got so many compliments on them last night. And That's he looked funny. at me and I know said, which pants so, I thought them. Yeah, yeah. But it's so weird what how uh much tailoring changes what you're wearing. Get your clothes tailored. And then what other advice would you say? Like, what do you find attractive in a man in terms of the way that they dress? I'm so short. I'm so petite. Everything I own is tailored. I have no choice Same. but to tailor it. So I'm and your big, name's Taylor. So yeah, very Taylor's fitting. a big, big Taylor fan. As far as men's clothes go, um, I I think it's it's the same thing. It's making sure it fits. It's tailored. It's clean. It's unwrinkled. Um, I was talking to Arash last night about fashion. He should definitely be someone that you get a men's perspective of in the yeah. in the clothing. He dresses well. Yeah, but he really makes an effort to follow up with the trends and what's going on. He's like, if he's wearing baggy pants, he'll wear a tight shirt. If he's wearing a baggy shirt, he'll wear tighter pants. He was saying that the cropped skin tight pants are out. Um, but the super, super baggy jeans, I don't personally like either. I think some men are trending into the flared jeans. Really? These days, the bell bottom like look, not for me. I'm pretty classic. I like just a regular fitted pants. The guys who are wearing leggings as pants has never been for me. No, the I super agree. baggy is not for me. I but. like fitted pants on men, not skinny jeans, but like the boot. jeggings. I can't. No, no, no. Let's say you're a younger lawyer and maybe like you don't have the budget to like have this like crazy wardrobe. I would say invest in a really nice pair of shoes and a really nice belt. I'm also really big fan of 
H&M. I mean, Zara's even on the pricier side these days, but I have full full suits from H&M that everyone always asks me where I get them from. They come tailored. They're great fit. Uh, I'm like, all I want to do right now is go on H&M. I have so many full suits from H&M. I have so many everyday work clothes. I mean, in our office, my dad's old school. We have to dress up for work every day. Fridays are... Uh, casual, but every other day of the week, I'm not in a suit, but I have to dress up. Wait, and didn't so, you tell me a story about how one day you and Michelle thought he wasn't showing up and you came in in like regular clothes? Yeah, I wore leggings on a Tuesday and I was traumatized. I was hiding behind my desk when my dad walked in. I never know when he was going to when he's going to show up. My sister was pregnant. I think you need to do a whole podcast on pregnancy and workplace attire. I think we had a it was a lot with um what was appropriate workplace when you're pregnant. My sister needed to wear leggings. She didn't have much clothing, but you're not supposed to wear leggings at work. So it was... Uh, How did he take that? He, he he could not say anything with his grandchild in there. Right. But she tried to be professional, but she tried to buy clothes that weren't as expensive because she knew she'd only be wearing them for eight months. But um, Target... TJ Maxx, Nordstrom Rack, Saks Fifth Art. Nordstrom Rack is amazing. 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 And I bought some expensive shit at Nordstrom yes. Rack lately. I got this Theory blazer that was like 500 bucks and I got it for like 150. The outlets, I, thrift stores. I'm like a big bargain finder because I also don't really like work clothes. I don't want to be wearing it five days a week and I have to, but I don't want to spend my money on it. So I've gone like the other way. Like I used to like always be in a suit. I would like, I would buy theory suits and then I'd have to have them super tailored. And I've kind of just gone to the other side where I'm like, I love fashion and maybe it's not as like right now I'm wearing a crop top. So are you like, maybe it's not as professional, but it's so professional enough that I mean, you wear crew neck with a crop top. I actually, my my fiance asked me why I didn't stand up when I was giving a lecture today. He thought it would have been more, you know, more presentable, and I agreed with him. But I said my top was a little short, and I didn't want to stand in a room full of people, attorneys, giving a lecture with a sliver of my stomach showing. I just prefer, you know, I didn't try this on before I packed, and I I try to be really cautious about those things. I don't think it's a big deal at the end of the day. Especially here. At Lottie Gras, it's like so chill. I wore a mini skirt yesterday and I had three panels and I kind of debated it. I was like, oh, I'm sitting up there in a mini skirt. And then I was like, you know what? Fuck it. <laughs> like, it is what it is. I worry about as a woman, I don't want people to be giving me cases or wanting to work with me because they enjoy looking at me or enjoy what I'm wearing. And it, it's probably a lot of it's in my head, but I'm really cautious about that. I don't want people, you know, staring at my top when I'm, or my midriff when I'm giving a lecture about legal topics. So I'm super... But you're a lawyer. I'm not. Yeah, but I, I get I get really self-conscious about why people are interested in, in my work and what I'm saying. I even try not to come to these things. I'm really on the other end of it, so I might not be the right fashionista for it, but I try not to come and, you know, wear a bikini the whole weekend. I'm When I'm at a professional legal event, I try to really keep it that way. I, I feel self-conscious in a, like, yeah, the pool in a legal event. people I'm seeing opposing counsel in the courtroom. I don't need them seeing my ass at the pool. Right. No, so. I agree. Um, but going back, so I'm, I assume most of my listeners are men and I really want to help them. Yeah. What other tips can we give them? I think you have to put effort in. Whoever thinks it's like not a big deal the way you dress, I just disagree with that. I mean, men, the same way as women, they usually have to tailor their suits anyway. So I'm like, if I'm going to tailor a $400 theory suit and make it fit me perfectly, I might as well 
tailor an H&M, H&M suit that's $25. But what about, do you worry about the quality of the material? Like, I feel like you can tell a difference. I think, though, in men and women, it doesn't bother me when I see someone and I think that, you know, that doesn't, that shirt doesn't look as as expensive. I mean, I would pick fit over 100% price any freaking day. I would pick fit. I just don't think they should go to super extremes. I mean, I've seen the men with the skin tight suit from head to toe. Yeah, I know. I just think it's not for me. You're drawing so much attention. You're drawing a lot of attention to the wrong things. I think try to be clean, inconspicuous. You don't want people. I don't. My goal isn't for people to come up to me or to look at a guy and be like, your outfit. You know, you just have to look presentable and clean cut and that you put some effort in. If you don't know how to match or you don't know what you're doing, wear black, brown, dark green. Wear all neutral colors. I'm a big neutral fan. Yeah, me too. All big I wear neutral. is black, really. I'm not into the, the the crazy dressers. I just, I think simple is is easiest. And were you like inspired by your parents? Like you're your mom, well, one of your moms, I know you have two. Uh, she's like, she dresses like amazing. Like, I'm like, what the hell? Like, like out of fucking like catalogs. Like, what the hell? Not even catalogs. It's like we're, it's 2023. But you know, like blogger shit. Like, it's funny. She has amazing style and I live in her closet. And it was really nice growing up with a mom who has tastes like that. But we also have really different styles. I don't dress as crazy as she does. She likes the glitz, the glam. She likes people to look at her outfit. She's very trendy, I would argue. Very trendy. She's very trendy. You're more of like a classic trendy. Yeah, we're really we're really different trends. I like to be simple, sleek, incognito, but you look at it and you're like, "Wow, that's really put together." But I don't know what brand that is or how expensive it was, but you just look clean chic timeless is more my vibe she's more out there top of the trend what about Um, michelle michelle's a combination which is really funny on the day-to-day she's more my vibe but when she'll go to an event um or go out she'll really you know put a number on that i might i might not do but yeah it's i i think it's we're just really everyone kind of has their own vibe their own style and her, yeah, hers is definitely not mine, but her closet, her closet's amazing. I'm a combo, and I wish I could do what your mom does at legal events. I just don't dare. Like, some of those very trendy things, I think because we're in such a very corporate, in a way, very, like, classic environment, it, it would, like, it would draw attention, right? Whereas if I was just, like, chilling with my friends, then I would be more, like, trendy, you know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. I tr- I honestly try to draw the least amount of attention to what I'm wearing, which is ironic because I do frequently have um, people coming up to me and saying, you know, where is that from? I love what you're wearing. But it's really, I think understated is the best way to go. That's my personal preference, particular in the legal field. I think with men too, you want people to focus on on what you're doing, what you're saying, and not what you're wearing. I think the number one thing you nailed it in the beginning is tailoring. If something fits you right, and tailoring doesn't mean slim fitted. Tailoring means just the right fit. I think if you nail the fit, you can throw a trash bag on if it fits you right. And it's crazy because like my husband will go through this, well, he'll buy a suit, he'll tailor it, and then he fluctuates in weight a lot. 
So like he's always skinny, but sometimes he's skinnier than other times. So he'll put it on and it'll be baggy on him. And then he'll literally like go have to do it all over again. Uh, so even like a five, 10 pound difference can make. So like you might get a suit tailored and you lose four pounds and it just doesn't look the same anymore. You got to have them. My dad has his skinny suits and his fat suits and his in-between suits. And I mean, the reality of that, especially my dad always says as a trial lawyer, his weight goes up and down from trial to trial or not in trial and in trial. Dylan just lost a ton of weight. He got into boxing and he went to Nordstrom Rack after work the other day because he's starting trial and got the same exact suits that he currently owns in a different size. Do you know what brands they are? I don't, but he went to Nordstrom Rack and he went to Saks Fifth Off and found a lot of really good finds at really good prices. So those are those stores are even good for men. And Nordstrom's has uh, the half a yearly sale. I like Hugo Boss for suits for men. I love Hugo Boss for men. You have to tailor them, though. I mean, there are way better suits than that, but like a reasonable. I've also never been the girl who buys clothes for their significant other. Oh, I've my husband never bought like shit. So I have clothes. To. Oh, my husband's awful. I'm so unfamiliar. I can barely buy clothes for myself. So I don't know much of the men's branding. And actually, my fiance has a little bit of crazier style than I would. He always puts on things that I'm just like, I'm just, yeah, I, but I don't. He like, he's famous, no? And like some world or another. I'm sports? not into the like trendy, crazy Wait, hold on. Tell wardrobe. me about your fiance for a second. So he, d- he does, um, entertainment stuff. He played college basketball at Baylor and a lot of his friends um, ultimately end up going to the NBA. And so he um, was making a lot of content basketball videos with them that really exploded when he was in college and thereafter. So he kind of became a basketball um, influencer in a sense. And I think his, his passion is interviewing and doing hosting so he's worked a lot with the nba and hosting he wants to try to transition out of sports he's invested in a lot of startups his mom is a huge realtor in in um la and so he does some real estate with her you know especially when it involves his athlete friends but he's a he's a man of many talents and i hate when people ask me what he does because he does everything under the sun and i never know how to explain it but he's definitely in the scene when it comes to attire and i always tell him i'm like i hate that outfit what was it like growing up in la it's all i knew i've never left la i went to high school in la kindergarten preschool i went to college in la i went to law school in la i was one of the five siblings who never ever left so it's hard for me to say because I never saw anything else. I kept myself in my bubble, which I think is definitely for better and for worse. But I think I found a really good group of people throughout my life that kept me grounded and that made me stay attached to LA and enjoy it and my family's here. Because I think a lot of people are afraid to raise kids in LA. And I agree with them 100%. And I often contemplate when I have kids do I want to raise them in L.A.? I understand everything that everyone says about L.A. and why they don't like it. That's I why we left. It. I did not want to. I loved it. L.A. will always have like a very special place in my heart. But one of the reasons I left was because that kind of worried me a little. You did a big move, though. You didn't just leave. I mean, I'm thinking about leaving like to Orange County. I left to San Diego San first, Diego. though. That's fairness. true. We've just done so much. I mean, now you're you're in Mexico. I think no, as- we're in Miami now. And there was a, a five-month When Vegas. we're off the record, you need to tell me how that happened. 
Well, I will. Yeah. You move a lot. I, think I know. We're I, done. We're done. Miami's it. Are I you just, sure? I don't want to. I'm positive. I just did not want to pay California taxes. So. It makes sense. I, I honestly understand everything people say about California. And I think when I have kids, I'm really going to have to rethink, put my focus on that and them and where I want to do that. And I'm equally as concerned about that. What's it like being Gary Dordick's daughter in terms of what a big deal he is? And like, that must be tough to some extent. I imagine maybe it's not to feel like, well, I have this like crazy head start in life. And then on top of that, I have this crazy head start in my career. But then it's like really big shoes to fill. It's the greatest thing ever. I tell him all the time. I'm obsessed with him. I think being his daughter is like my the greatest gift ever. I could cry. Um, I hope that I can learn everything and anything from him for the rest of our lifetime. I think if he lives till, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, I'm like the luckiest person ever. But it's definitely big shoes to fill. And I think I think about it often, the weight of knowing how privileged I am, exactly what you said, to have gotten such a head start in life and a head start in my career. I recognize that and I notice it and I think about it all the time and that I need to do good with it and make use of it. My dad told us growing up, you're so lucky that you have someone paying for your college. So lucky you have someone paying for your school, a roof over your head, a car, whatever it is, that there's no excuse for me to be doing nothing. I mean, there's people who are who are begging to get um, further education that don't have access to it. So for me to have access to it and and just mm, I'll pass, it's the craziest thing in the world to me. I mean, I I feel like I not only am doing it for myself, but to take advantage of the things that you have and have perspective on life is something I I always think about. So I try to fill his shoes because I want to make him proud. I want to make myself proud. I want to do good for my clients. But I I want to do good for everyone who doesn't have the same opportunity and just really take advantage of the position that I'm in. And is the goal for the three of you to keep trying cases and like make a name for yourself selves so that people start referring cases to you versus your dad? Yeah, I think a big fear of my dad's when he goes to bed at night is, you know, God forbid he's not here anymore one day, or if he wants to take a step back in his practice, is there still going to be cases coming in? Do people still want to send cases to his firm because of the people that work there? Um, Or is the whole firm going to crumble down when he leaves? He he thinks about that all the time. And we're always talking about um, ways to make sure that doesn't happen. So it's, it's a huge thing that we think about. Hopefully, me and my siblings and also some other amazing attorneys at our office can can keep the name. He wants to try cases with as many as us, with as many of us as possible, as many as possible, and make sure that he's teaching us exactly what he does so we can carry it on without him. And is there anything that you guys are doing um, independently of your dad to try to generate cases to the firm? I think nowadays everyone's really big on the social media stuff. And you would do great. I'm trying. We're out here trying. I'd love to do more social, um, more, you know, more outreach for my own. My sister and I are doing a lot of sexual assault cases and trying to find our own niche in the firm. My dad's always told me you can go chase auto accidents with the rest of us or you can find something that, you know, you have 
a big passion is for. Is that your passion? Yeah. So I'm That must be so tough. There it's a really different type of client. And tell me about it. Though the clients that I represent in those types of cases, you develop much more of a deeper relationship with them. It's much more personable. They really rely on you in a way that your cases with back injuries don't. I mean, I'm still, when the case closes, I'm still really close with them. You feel really let in to someone's personal private life. And you're, they're not most of the time after money. They're after getting something off their chest, off their shoulders. They want their day in court to stick it to this person that did something so disgusting and horrific to them. And just being someone, putting them in that position where they can, you know, tell people what happened to them and get vindication for that. It's a different kind of appreciation they have for you. It's They turn into a different person after the case. I mean, I see a transition from them from the day they stepped into our office till the day trial ends. And the difference in who they are as a human being is really drastic. And that's it's something that I really enjoy seeing. I think that's amazing. It's it's really neat to find your own passion, right? And something that you want to do, right? And that you feel makes a difference. God forbid something like that happened to me, I would feel much more comfortable with a female. Like no doubt about it. That's like where you, it, it's a superpower. Right. It's something that I think my dad can't necessarily master ever just because he's a man. And when we do intake for these types of cases, they don't necessarily want to be telling my dad the intimate things that happened to them when they were six from their uh, teacher or whoever it is. They feel much more comfortable talking to a woman about it. So I think my sister and I stepped in and doing some of those intakes and I just felt such a huge um, drive to to help these people. The more I listened to them and um, the more I talked to them and heard their stories, it was I was really attached to the people and to the story and to making them whole in a way that was different from auto accidents, in a way that's different than my dad maybe be able to bring out. I didn't know that. I didn't know that that's what you were doing or that you were passionate about that. My sister and I tried a really big sexual sexual assault case with my dad. And I think just having a team of what was the verdict? women, that was $2.28 billion. What? Oh, I thought you were messing with me. You're fucking with me. No, in Riverside. Oh my God, congratulations. I yeah. didn't know this. Yeah. I know you guys have ago. like crazy. I see them all the time, but I didn't know this particular one. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that you was... thought I was messing with you. Yeah. And then what verdict is that? <laughs> yeah, $2.28 billion. And that client is one of the most amazing human beings that I've ever met in my life, a, just as a human being, is her life story is she's phenomenal. And it's she inspires me to do what I do. If I could have a case like hers and do them all pro bono and make no money from them, I would do them three times a year just to, you know, feel like I'm you know, helping someone and doing. And good. is that the case that like made you passionate about this or it, there were cases before this? We worked on some on sexual assault cases before that, but that was a really, I mean, it was a huge verdict. That was a huge turning point for us. And that client was had a special place in our heart. So it was a big one. That must have felt really fucking good. The entire courtroom was bawling. The jurors were bawling. She was bawling. We were bawling while they were reading the verdict. And when we walked out into the hallway after, the jurors were all standing there and gave her a standing ovation as she walked out of the courtroom and gave her a hug and wanted to talk to her. And Who was it against? 
it was so she had been molested by her father um and we sued the church because they knew about the, the molestation and didn't do anything about it so the defendants were her father the church and her mother who also knew about the molestation and did nothing about it what was the church's involvement so she had gone to the church quite a few times and told them she's being molested by her father and they said oh, they'll handle it they'll handle it nothing ever changed they told her not to call the police um and that you know to hug and forgive him and that she should be you know sin for her uh sin for herself because she's now lost her virginity before marriage and that this is her fault and she should just um give him a hug and say he say she's sorry and nothing ever ha- came about until she was in high school and mentioned it again to one of her teachers there who told the police and he ultimately went to jail for it but she the road she was molested by him from when she was a small child until she was in high school and what that does to someone for the rest of their life her when by the time her trial came around she was um in her 40s i believe does the church have a responsibility it's actually an interesting question because at the time this happened back in the day i, I believe it was the 80s there was no law saying that they had a duty to uh, there's no mandatory reporting at that time today there is so if a school or a church um hears about something like this they have a mandatory obligation and a duty to report it to the authorities at this day and time they didn't so it was really tricky because the only way to get responsibility on them was uh, essentially through through a theory of they offered to help and they told her they were doing something about it and they prevented her from getting help and so once you if you for example see someone dying on the ground if you choose not to help them that's your choice you don't have to do anything about it or if you decide to help them even if you don't know them once you assume the responsibility and and once you start helping them you have an obligation to see it through you don't have to save their life but you can't start doing CPR prevent anyone else from coming to help because they think you're helping them and then be like mm, can't do it and walk away you'll have to then call someone and say i i can't do this you need to come in so once you assume the responsibility of assisting someone and then and prevent them from getting help elsewhere you've the now assumed the responsibility and the duty and obligation to see that through or to at least report it at that point and was it paid because the case was so tricky against the church in that regard they offered quite a bit of money to settle out uh her mom also offered her quite a bit of, bit of money to settle out so we ended up getting paid uh from the church and from her mom and so she got a decent amount of money and then against her father he had nothing um but what she wanted from him was for him to get up on the stand and admit what he did she had never ever told her story to anyone in her lifetime other than myself and the jury and telling the jury was the first group of people she's ever told her story to and she wanted to stand up there and have people say i hear you i believe you you're not wrong and this person's a disgusting human being and so she didn't see money from the verdict against her father but i don't think the money she got before that did anything for her i think her leaving that courtroom with a 2 billion dollar verdict and a standing ovation and them saying that her father's a disgusting piece of took 
years off her shoulders and finally made her able to move on with her life a bit. How did she find you guys? Backing up a minute, the money that she did get from the church and from her mom, she used it to go. She had all these aspirations to be a chef. She used it to go to culinary school. She went she went back and furthered her education and used this money um, to put towards things that she had wanted to do her whole life. And today she's become the person that she had wanted to be 20 years ago. Um, her career's really exploded. She keeps in touch with me about that. She's a chef at a really huge, a huge, she was a chef at a really huge restaurant and then became a chef at a really massive hotel. And so she used that money for good, which really made me happy to hear. But that case came from um, a referral attorney that we work with all the time, Mark Flores. Well, thank you so much for joining me. We'll do it again with the whole crew. Yes, I want to get the whole crew. Thank you to Taylor Dordick for everything she shared with us today. If you found this story valuable, share it with someone you want to see succeed. Subscribe so you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review. It goes a long way to help others discover the show.